Um, as Norma mentioned, and as I also went on to explain, the kind of the change of direction of where we are going to go with the text this morning, I'm actually only going to be referring to um, Acts 11, 19 through 26. Uh, the, the passage that's to be projected included 27 through 30, but we'll save that for another day. So we'll be looking at Acts 11, verses 19 through 30. And let me read that and encourage you to follow along. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. A great many people were added to the Lord, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I have shared in small gatherings and with a few of you um, a practice that Jan and I have adopted and have been kind of observing over the last few years. And that's uh, in the evening we turn the TV off at uh, 8 o'clock after Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. And, And then Jan reads to me. And we've been reading the classics, uh, classics that we'd never read before, or the fact that we did read them so long ago, we can't even remember the story, so we need the refresher courses. We read till about nine, and some of the classics that we have read so far are White Fang, Sea Wolf, Treasure Island, Gulliver's Travels, Kidnapped, Last of the Mohegans, Red Badge of Courage, Moby Dick, and The Hobbit. And Jan does a great imitation, great imitation of the voice of um, Gollum. <laughs> Have her do it for you sometime. It's, it's really entertaining. Right now, we're reading Ivanhoe. And we're in the first part of the book, and it's really interesting to watch of how so many characters are being introduced in these opening chapters. You're trying to figure out where they're all going to plug in. And, who are the minor characters and who are the major characters? And it gets exciting as you recognize eventually the importance that each one of these characters play in telling the story. And this morning, our selected scripture passage sets before us names that we have heard before. And in some ways is setting us up to recognize this thing is coming together. Something is really exciting going to happen. It's in the book of Acts. These people who, as they are being mentioned again, 
we began to appreciate the important roles that they have played in the fulfillment of the Great Commission and the establishment of the Christian church. The first name that appears in our text is Stephen. You remember Stephen. We were first introduced to him in chapter 6, when he and six others were appointed by the apostles to have oversight of the distribution of aid, specifically to the widows within the church. He, being among seven men, were recognized as being of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and of wisdom. And we read later in chapter 6 that in addition to him providing uh, attention or need or care for those within the fellowship, Stephen was full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So his ministry went way beyond serving tables. It was his bold testimony of faith in the resurrected Jesus that angered the Hellenistic Jews, which led to the fact that he had to appear before the council, the the leaders, the scribes, the teachers of the law, and give explanation of what he was all about. What's What's this stuff he's teaching? And in doing so, he only angered them more to the point it required of him his life, to be taken out and stoned. His martyrdom was the beginning of intense intense persecution of the disciples of Jesus and, and therefore contributed to this scattering of Christ's followers to distant lands like we have just read concerning Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Antioch. The home of Nicholas. Do you remember who Nicholas was? Well, Nicholas was one of the seven that was appointed along with Stephen and the others to be attending to the cares or needs of the widows. Again, like Stephen, a man of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And so being one of the scattered by the persecution, it could very well be assumed that Nicholas return to his hometown, Antioch. Do you see how it's beginning to come together? And in earlier chapters of this book that we've been reading, we have noticed another name, repeating it in this text, Barnabas, a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, so similar in character and likeness to the seven that were appointed by the apostles. Persecution. Persecution of the disciples, designed to stamp out this this growing movement of people who want to follow the teachings of Jesus, only proved to be fuel for the fire that burned within them to the point it could not be contained, and and the message was being spread just like wildfire. If the intrigue and suspense of the story has not yet grabbed your attention, consider another man named earlier in our book, Saul. Saul, who was presented or who was president and gave approval of Stephen's stoning. Saul, 
who was ravaging the church, <laughs> Saul, once the persecutor of the church, becomes, becomes the persecuted because of his desire to promote the church. Because of the persecution, Jewish followers of the way or disciples of Jesus fled Jerusalem, not to hide their faith, but to find a place where they could pursue their faith, where they could be together and grow in, in, in similarities in the likeness of Christ who defined their faith. And Antioch was one of those places where they could escape persecution because Antioch embraced all kinds of faith. <laughs> Being the third largest city of the Roman Empire, it was a crossroads of commerce containing a large colony of Jews, but also the home of a number of pagan religions. There was one particular religion that was quite popular in Antioch, and it was the religion that was governed by the goddess Daphne. There was a temple five miles outside of Antioch in, in a laurel grove. And it was the scene of all kinds of despicable practices of a, a false religion. It was based upon uh, the mythology of, of Apollo pursuing Daphne, uh, a sensual pursuit, to the point that day in and day out, the city would engage the men and and reenacting this pursuit and employing the services of the, uh, the prostitutes of the temple. Throughout the world, the morals of, of uh, Daphne was so often just identified with the, deprav the depravity of people at large. It, it was so de detestable. To this city of sensuality and wickedness, unnamed Jews from the island of Cyprus, Cyprus, where, remember who was from Cyprus? Barnabas from Cyprus? And Cyrene in North Africa, sent by no one but by the Holy Spirit, and they had no official papers or directions from the apostles, but <clears throat> simply motivated by their burning love for Jesus Christ, to go to Antioch to share the gospel, <clears throat> the gospel message. And it's revealed, revealed to us in verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and great number who believed turned to the Lord. And if I could quote my favorite commentator on this particular passage, Kent Hughes says, they were the first believers to bring this explosive light of Christianity into the midnight of paganism. Antioch was evangelized not by apostles, but by average members of Christ's body who were willing simply to share their faith. Wow. Such a, such a beautiful, beautiful... Unknown characters in the story play such a vital part in how this is all unfolding. The report of what was happening came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, as we read in our text. 
In the verses just before the text that we are looking at this morning, there's the account of Peter and his six brothers of faith testifying to the church leaders in Jerusalem about the conversion of Cornelius and his whole household. As how the Holy Spirit had come upon them, just like it had come upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost. Such a similar experience, it had to be given thought, or at least reason, or accepted as truth, that they too have found Christ. And so, because of this exposure as to what the Holy Spirit, what Christ himself was doing through the sovereign plan of God, uh, and through the, through the believers in, in Christ, they go to see what's happening in Antioch. Barnabas being sent to investigate. And we read, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them, and he encouraged them. Exhorted, encouraged, remember him? Son of encouragement, Barnabas? Encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Evidently, the fellowship of believers was growing quickly <laughs> to the place where Barnabas recognized it was more than he himself could handle. He needed a co-worker. So Barnabas went to Tarsus, Tarsus, to look for Saul. Remember Saul fleeing Jerusalem because the Hellenistic Jews sought to kill him? And where did he end up? In his hometown, Tarsus. And so Barnabas heads out to encourage Saul to join him. Why Saul? Why would Barnabas choose Saul over the apostles, or, or particularly over Peter, particularly since Peter just gave this testimony of how the Holy Spirit was working among the Gentiles? It has been eight to ten years since we have had any real contact with Saul, since he left Jerusalem as being persecuted, running for his life. But it was during this time of exile that Saul would mature in his understanding and continued to preach and testify that as he was called out by Christ himself, he wanted to make certain to share that testimony with others. There would have been some awareness of his ministry during this time, since early on Barnabas recognized Saul as a man worthy of defense, and also recognizing that in our book that we read, he was considered as one of the disciples, because he could go freely in and out among them as he visited them for the first time in Jerusalem. Barnabas, <laughs> Barnabas, the son of encouragement, going after Saul. Barnabas was sensitive, empathetic, um, gracious, and quite evident in the scriptures, he was one who possessed the gift of discernment. Saul, his credentials are unquestionable. He has always been a defender of the faith. 
A faith built on his understanding of Jewish law, but has come to the point in his faith when he recognized that Jesus Christ is the one who fulfilled the law. And he was ready to argue the case. So, the two together, being empowered by the Holy Spirit, does a great work. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Together, they planted a church that would become the launch pad for the missionary journeys that would reach into Europe and Asia Minor. In this dark, dark city, God plants his church with two people coming from two ends of the spectrum, coming together in agreement of who Christ is in their life and who he is in the world. There's another element here that is, is, is a bit subtle, and, and we may not see it until actually we go further into the book of Acts. But up to this point, pretty much so, it has been Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. But from this point on, we recognize a change. It becomes Saul or Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. As Paul finds himself to be in a position of taking charge of some of the work that was set before them. It, 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 it would possibly be, obviously, that Barnabas was yielding some of his leadership to Paul. Barnabas, the older one. Barnabas, the more experienced in the life of the church. Barnabas, the gift of discernment, recognizing it was time maybe for someone to step up. It's, it's kind of like when John the Baptist spoke about Jesus. I must become the lesser so that he may become the greater. This spirit of encouragement, this spirit of humility, this spirit of servanthood, this spirit of generosity is just fleshed out in how Barnabas releases his position to be assumed by Saul, working together. And in Antioch, we read, the disciples were first called Christians. In one of the most sordid cities within the Roman Empire, God calls out his people, who are to be called by a new name, up to this point, these followers of Christ have been called Galileans, Nazarenes, disciples, brethren, men and women of the way, seen as simply a sect within the Jewish faith. Yet they were seen as being different by the citizenry of Antioch, by the pagans of Antioch, whether called out mockingly as being Christ followers or simply tagged with this new nickname, a group being separated from, from the Jewish traditions, the new name, Christians, stuck. The ending, I-A-N, in the original language means belonging to. Thus, Christians were a part of the Jesus party, or belonging to Jesus. This intriguing, amazing story is another account of God's sovereign work, sovereign work of bringing hope and life 
out of the darkest places and out of the most challenging times. In the midst of Satan's playground, God establishes his church. <laughs> Even the pagan community recognized these churchgoers as being like the Christ they proclaimed as being their Lord and Savior. Now, I've just told you the story. And this is where the rub comes. What a powerful testimony concerning the church. And it should be the testimony of the church today. Yet the church today in America is so pasteurized and homogenized and politicized, little differences recognized by the outside, by those outside the church as being any more than another social organization. The Christ followers of Antioch were seen as being different from the world around them. Their, their life's practices separated them from the lifestyle sought by the majority. It wasn't a life of coexistence with a culture of conformity. It was a determined decision to be different by simply only following Jesus. They belonged to Jesus and not to the world. The church grew because Jesus was the center of everything that they did. Jesus was paramount in all that was taught. He was lifted up above all men within the church. The pursuit of every believer, every Christian, was to be like Jesus. While in the world, they chose not to be a part of it. <clears throat> and so I, the question, I think the question needs to be asked, that we have to ask ourselves individually and corporately. Would we be recognized as a Christian by those we encounter day in and day out? And if so, what kind of Christian? Are we going to be those who safely live out our lives under the radar to, to avoid the appearance of being different? Or would we be recognized as being those who have been called out to be like Jesus? Uncompromising commitment to live for and even die to self for Jesus. Can we, do we give the evidence that truly we belong to Jesus? I want to just conclude with a prayer that I found that I think is applicable for this self-examination as well as the charge that the passage of Scripture could, would possibly be setting before us this morning. So just pray with me as I share this with you.
Oh God, help us to be loyal, brave, committed followers of Christ who refuse to conform to this world, who do, who do dare to stand firm and to make Christ's name known to all around us, who desire with his divine enabling to shine the light of the gospel upon our dark, dark world and winning others to you. In Jesus' name, amen.